Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's podcast, I just want to thank everyone who has supported our show by listening, subscribing, sharing, and most importantly, by donating. Spike's content is free and it always will be. It's thanks to your donations and regular donations in particular that we've been able to keep going and growing. The Spiked Podcast has now grown to a point where we're able to get sponsorship. What that means for you is that there's another way you can support the show by checking out some of the deals we're able to pass your way. But donations are still by far the best and most direct way to support us. So if you think we're doing something right, saying what needs to be said, challenging what needs to be challenged, then please do consider starting a regular donation if you haven't already. As little as £5 per month can go a long way. If you'd like to make a donation, you can do that by going to spiked-online.com and hitting the big red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button is in the top right corner. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me as ever we have Spiked's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Today's show is brought to you by Stitch Fix and The Great Courses Plus, which we'll tell you a little bit more about later. Also coming up on the show, we'll be discussing the woke cultural revolution, Steve Bannon's peculiar philosophy and J.K. Rowling. I think what we're seeing here is the genesis of a cultural revolution. Little Britain, starring David Williams and Matt Lucas, has been removed from all streaming platforms. I didn't realise how offensive it was back then. And I just want to apologise, whether I was Michael Jackson, Craig David. Offend your family, call them out. Silence is violence. Alongside the Black Lives Matter protests against police brutality, there is a cultural revolution brewing in the West. Statues are being toppled and removed, streets and buildings are being renamed, and offensive artwork is being censored. In the UK, this has meant tearing down statues of slave traders, but also pulling supposedly offensive comedy shows from Netflix and BBC iPlayer, like Little Britain, The League of Gentlemen and The Mighty Boosh. Anton Deck and Beau Selectors Lee Francis have also made grovelling apologies for their past comedy skits, Tom, what have you made of the current purge so far? Well, I kind of go between thinking it's hilarious and terrifying. I think it's hilarious because it's kind of, as you say, it's this kind of mini cultural revolution. Someone actually in support of all of these kind of purging said that pretty explicitly on the BBC this week. You know, it's a campaign of censorship, of denunciations, of trying to cleanse public space, cleanse streaming services, cleanse workplaces of anything which doesn't kind of toe an increasingly narrow line on various issues. But at the same time, the targets for it so far seem to have been 2000s comedy shows, Anton Deck, um, and inanimate objects, whether it's a statue of Baden-Powell in Poole or it's um, some of the slavers who have been taken down in the last couple of days. On one level, it's absolutely ridiculous. And I think it's important to recognise that because what began as a very serious discussion about police brutality in the US, what racial inequalities might also exist in the UK and how those might be tackled into a conversation about trivialities. It became about culture. Um, It became about offence in many respects. And I think we should recognise how silly that is because I think it shows how unserious a lot of these people are. But at the same time, what's so worrying about it is kind of behind a lot of the understandable kind of um, concern and good feeling and 
the desire to do something about these issues amongst people, an incredibly intolerant agenda has kind of snuck in behind that. It's been accepted entirely uncritically. And you have a lot of institutions, you know, whether it's LBC sacking Farage this week, seemingly because there had been a kind of internal revolt amongst staff members about him referring to Black Lives Matter as the woke Taliban, or it's these streaming services, etc., feeling like they're trying to get ahead of public opinion by taking down anything which might be deemed to be offensive. What we're going to end up at the end of all this is not with any of those serious issues tackled, but just a far more intolerant, censorious, and frankly, unhinged culture in which even the most minor transgressions, present or historical, need to be wiped off the face of the earth. And I think we're just entering a really, really strange phase. I think what we're basically seeing is not necessarily the strength of this kind of identitarian movement, which is rode in behind the Black Lives Matter protests and definitely a big part of them. But I think just the complete capitulation of all of these institutions, they have just rolled over in the face of all of it. And the consequence of this is that these stories are coming in like a you know a mile a minute at this point. It's really, really quite strange, really, really quite concerning. And as much of a lot of it is silly, there's a very sinister undertone to a lot of it, I think. Ella? It makes you think about how long this row over particularly about statues has been going on when i saw the news about the columbus statue i immediately thought of that brilliant episode in the sopranos from 2002 where there's a row between the native americans and these italian mafiosos over the columbus day parade and the statue and you know way back then the writers of that show were taking the mick out of the ridiculousness of both sides and how they were kind of play acting at this either being a statue that meant a huge amount to them or was incredibly damaging to them. And there's sort of a similar thing going on now. I'm actually incredibly frustrated. I'm sure a lot of other people are that this has turned into, as Tom says, a war over inanimate objects. I mean, what a ridiculous form of politics for an issue that started off as something incredibly serious. I mean, that have we all forgotten that this was about, you know, police brutality and the murder of a man. And now we're sort of getting our knickers in a twist over the League of Gentlemen or ridiculous shock comedy tactics in Little Britain. And it's really important to note that there has been no public outcry for this. I actually can't even find petitions really Mm. about the removal of these shows. What's happened is that the BBC, Netflix, all these institutions or organisations have preemptively decided to cleanse themselves because they're what? They're afraid of being called racist. And I'm actually watching on social media Black Lives Matter campaigners playing catch up, you know, saying, oh, we see that this has been banned. Good move. Well done. That's, that's, you know, a win against racism. And it's just completely topsy-turvy. This is not how the fight against racism, which is a serious one, which involves a serious challenge to the establishment, is going to win. It's kind of play acting at politics. It's a good way of looking at the mixed bag that I think this current moment is because there are some very serious things happening in relation to protests in America and the UK. You know, some at the moment, we've still got an ongoing issue with the Windrush scandal in the UK. In America, there's very serious conversations going about on about the future of the police. To confuse that or muddy the waters of that serious argument with this kind of, as you've put it, a cultural revolution or sort of cultural hissy fit over past things, be they plays or films or statues, is just not the kind of progressive politics that's going to make any kind of transformative change. I mean, unfortunately, the past and and how we look at history fits into the broader, you know, woke worldview where we've been told so many times that race is an essential part of one's identity. And that in this kind of view of the world, history is still oppressing people of colour. 
which obviously I would argue is a completely regressive way of looking at people. You know, people are not tied to, whether it's white people tied to the sins of their forefathers 300 years ago or black people tied to the suffering of their forefathers 300 years ago. You know, people should be able to move on. I think it it really speaks to, in some ways, the class character of maybe not the demonstrations themselves, but of how the broader movement is going, where you do start off with a brutal police killing in the US and then you end up with basically a debate about architecture at Oxford University. Mm. I'm talking in relation in here to the Rhodes statue, which, you know, has been a bugbear of students for several years. But I, I somehow don't really buy the idea that this was a major concern for, you know, people living in the inner city, for instance, who were probably suffering a lot more from racism or from inequality than the people <laughs> protesting mm. outside that statue. Well, I think one of the most alarming developments in recent days is how even criticising Black Lives Matter itself has now basically become a sackable offence. You know, we saw this over the weekend with presenter on an Isle of Man radio station called Manx Radio, Stu Peters. He got into a heated debate with a caller, a black caller, about the question of white privilege. He basically just rubbished the idea. And he also questioned why people were protesting US police brutality on the Isle of Man and whether or not that was a good idea. He was sacked over that. Basically, within the same 24 hours, I think, there was this Welsh journalist called Martin Shipton, who was a judge on the Wales Book of the Year award. um, And over some tweets in which he basically just said, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Should people really be protesting? And also, does it make a lot of sense to have a Black Lives Matter protest in Cardiff City when the focus for this was Minneapolis police? He again was asked to step down. We've seen the Farage story recently, and it's not even necessarily saying anything racist, not saying anything particularly controversial. And actually, let's face it, offering opinions in many cases, like white privilege sounds like a bit of nonsense when you really think about it, which are going to be very widely held opinions are now a kind of sackable offence. That's how quickly this kind of new orthodoxy has been able to maintain itself. And I think it's just something which has been so surprising how quickly it's happened. What I think is really important going forward is that we have to really kind of make a distinction between anti-racism and this kind of woke bollocks, because the two are being conflated. If you question any of these precepts around statues or microaggressions or anything else, if you don't actually buy the idea that a 200-year-old statue staying up, which most people don't really know what it is anyway, is literally contributing to racism in the here and now, then if you even just kind of question any of those things, you're seen to be being on the kind of the wrong side of history. You're seen to being on the wrong side of an anti-racist struggle. That's not what any of this is about. This is broadly speaking about trivialities. It's broadly speaking not about fighting racism so much as it is about kind of creating a victimhood identity. It's not really about transcending any of those things so much as it is as kind of wallowing in them. And similarly, I think it's so obvious that to the extent that these people are actually serious about tackling the problems that they claim to care about, all of this nonsense they're obsessed with is only going to be a block to it. You know, the fact that both in the US and the UK, this quickly just became a discussion about white privilege, about people needing to atone for the privilege that they've enjoyed, that that white people need to kind of take responsibility for things they had zero to do with. Andrew Doyle makes a Great point about this in his long reef for Spike this week, which will be up today. And where he quotes Hannah Arendt, who made this point in the 60s, that there was a desire then for liberal whites to kind of embrace this collective guilt. But she made the point that that's the best possible way to safeguard against the discovery of culprits. Because in her words, where all are guilty, no one is. Mm. And I think that's just a really important point to make, which is not only is this kind of all this identitarian guff ridiculous, but also this approach this tendency towards collective guilt and collective victimhood is not only incredibly disempowering, not only, as we've made this point many times, is it only really of benefit to those 
well-to-do white people who get to feel good about themselves by saying that they're repenting for this horrendous history. It's also a complete block to actually challenging the issues in society that people claim to care about. So I think just going forward, it's so important that we split apart these two things. We don't let these people have the moral high ground. We show how intolerant and frankly unhinged a lot of their behaviour and demands are, and that we just reassert the point that serious issues shouldn't be poisoned by all of this nonsense. Because at the moment, it's quite clear when you're talking about Little Britain in the same breath as George Floyd that it has been. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one aspect of the intolerance is it's not just that people are being sacked for saying the wrong thing, but people are under enormous pressure to say the right thing Mm. and to say the expected thing. The phrase, silence is violence, has become a bit of a catchphrase of this movement. And, you know, think about how troubling it is. So there was the owner of CrossFit who is essentially sacked for not wanting to do his minute silence or eight minute silence for George Floyd and and not wanting his brand to make a ridiculous spectacle of itself by having an opinion on police violence or on on racism. So that there is that kind of intolerance as well. And I think people don't really know what to turn because they don't know whether to not say anything, which is violence, Mm. or whether to embrace the guilt that they don't really feel. So it's, it's a very difficult time for lots of just ordinary people, I think. Ella? One of the interesting things was walking around in Parliament Square last weekend, it was quite obvious that as many as there were, you know, middle-class kids with signs that said silence is violence and white privilege and all that kind of stuff, there was also lots of groups of working-class kids, black and white, mixed together, who were showing their anger and were together. That was the important point. And there wasn't this kind of, you know, self-debasement on the part of the white kids. They weren't kind of washing the feet of their black friends like has been done (laughs) in other protests, but they were in it together. It was a genuine form of solidarity. And contrast that with, as you brought up, Oxford Fraser, you know, the the kind of the kneeling and the shame on me and, you know, the video that's just been put out on social media by celebrities saying, I take responsibility and it's all I, 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 me, me, me. And it's just, it's actually really stomach turning because this is in danger of turning into a focus on white narcissism rather than the injustices done to black people in this country and in America. And that's a travesty that can't happen. So actually, in a funny way, if you really do care about anti-racism and you think that the injustices that are clear to all of us and we've been watching from the video of George Floyd to others, then you have to say, no, I do not agree to toe the line on this. I'm going to speak my mind and say what it is that I think should be the fight against racism. Otherwise, this just turns into a kind of monster of identity politics and it won't change anything. Right. Now, before we move on to the next part of the show, I just want to tell you a little bit about Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service for men and women. I'm sure you want to look uh, stylish as we emerge from lockdown and you can finally start to see people again. And Stitch Fix is a great way to do that. All you have to do is go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash spiked and fill in the questionnaire, which asks you about your taste, your size and the kind of price you want to pay. With that info, an expert stylist will pick the perfect clothes for you and send them straight to your door. It's really easy to use and fun too. Once you've filled out a style profile, your stylist will handpick five pieces of clothing and accessories that match your style. There are over a 100 men's and women's brands in stock, including well-known names, more niche emerging designers 
and Stitch Fix his own exclusive in-house designs, which you won't find anywhere else. You can try your new clothes on at home and decide which to buy. You only have to pay for what you keep and send back the rest with free returns. There is a charge of just £10 for your stylist's time, but this is redeemable against anything you decide to keep. And there's no catch here. It's not one of those annoying subscription services. You can order a one-off delivery whenever you like. It's a fun way to treat yourself and you'll probably discover something you love that you might not have picked out for yourself otherwise. So get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash spiked right now. That's s-t-i-t-c-h-f-i-x.co.uk forward slash spiked. Steve Bannon, Donald Trump's former chief strategist, has been accused of being many unpleasant things. A racist, a xenophobe, a fellow traveller of the alt-right. But a new book by Benjamin Teitelbaum suggests that Bannon's philosophy is actually a lot weirder, if perhaps no less concerning, than all that. In War for Eternity, The Return of Traditionalism and the Rise of the Populist Right, Teitelbaum reveals that Bannon is steeped in the ideas of traditionalism, an obscure philosophical movement based in ancient spirituality and opposition to modernity. And Bannon, it turns out, is one of a handful of traditionalists who have managed to worm their way into high-level politics in recent years. I interview Ben for a piece on Spiked. What follows is an excerpt from our conversation. I started by asking him to explain what this philosophy was all about. It's an exceptionally obscure philosophy, you could say. This began as, as spirituality and religion. It wasn't really politics. Um, but some ideas that come out of it that have been relevant to politics are, are one, uh, the notion of cyclic time, the notion that whereas we typically think of society as progressing and building upon what was there in the past, uh, traditionalists reject that notion. They believe instead that we are moving through a period of four eras that progressively get worse, actually. So those eras are a golden, a silver, a bronze, and a dark age. So that's one thing that, that makes, makes traditionalism very exceptional. Things that they tend to, especially in the original versions, uh, tend to believe in social hierarchy and think that it actually corresponds to that time cycle. At the very top of an ideal social hierarchy in society, you would have priests followed by warriors merchants and eventually slaves, a, a hierarchy that goes from spirit to material. And they believe that as that time cycle goes by, what I was just talking about, not only is the world upended, what, what should be virtuous is treated as, as bad, but also hierarchy disintegrates. We become more materialistic and we start to homogenize into larger and larger communities. And, and the way to do alignment actually is to break apart that mass uh, entity into a world of, in a society of smaller pieces where borders matter. So that's a, a brief introduction. Mm -hmm. and, and just before we get into the figure of, of Steve Bannon, who is the kind of the focus of your book you, and who you conducted a number of interviews with, who are some of the kind of key kind of canonical, I guess, traditionalist thinkers um, who are kind of at the core of this particular intellectual movement? Well, originally, really, it, it, its patriarch was a man named René Ganon, who was, uh, who was a French philosopher of sorts, but also became a spiritualist. Um, he died answering to the name Sheikh Abd al-Wahid Yahya. He was more or less rejected the West and, and became a Sufi. 
But it was all brought into politics by a figure named Julius Evola, who was a theorist, philosopher, but who also was an activist, participated with Mussolini and even with Hitler during World War II. And his writings eventually inspired people on the fringes of, of, of the radical right. But this stuff was not known. If you go into a political science department, almost anywhere in the Western world and ask them about traditionalism, uh, they won't have a clue what this is. And moving on to, to Bannon himself, when did he first kind of come into contact with these ideas? You know, this kind of ve- it's interesting that he's a kind of figure associated with a kind of gruff, almost bread and butter populism. But again, there's this kind of background that he has in this very esoteric set of ideas and, and spirituality. So wh- when did he really first come into contact with these ideas? And does he call himself a traditionalist? Um, yes, he will call himself a traditionalist with, with qualifications to it. When he was very young, the story that he told me was uh, all about how, you know, growing up a Catholic in a working class neighborhood in Richmond, Virginia, and he starts branching out when he gets into college, he takes meditation classes. It sounds very typical for a lot of, a lot of uh, Americans at that time, but he keeps going deeper. Even when he gets into the Navy and he becomes a pretty rough guy, as you put it, he still is sneaking off to New Age metaphysical bookstores when he gets a chance and is alone um, from a young age. Right, and it's through all this that he finds Genon, is it? Yes. I'm not sure when he did that, actually. And then it was later that he encountered Evola. I mean, he's, he's read virtually everything that's translated into English of his authors. So, so it was really an interest in kind of New Age spirituality that eventually fused with his politics through Evola. And your book is, in in a way, Bannon is part of a kind of trio of individuals who are kind of taking this traditionalist ideology and kind of trying to fuse it with politics or, or trying to use it to influence politics and politicians in certain ways. So there's, there's Bannon, of course, there's also Alexander Dugin in Russia, and I'm probably going to murder the pronunciation of this, but Olavo de Cavallo um, in Brazil, or he's from Brazil, but he's actually living in the US. Each of these men you've you've interviewed, could you tell us a little bit about kind of them individually and how Bannon kind of connects them, I guess, or connected with them? Absolutely. And this is, this is the startling thing, what you're, just, what you're just mentioning there, Tom, is that you have this ideology has not been known to politics really since Julius Evola in, in, in World War II. If, if then, all of a sudden, in the past 10 years or so, we've seen politicians having traditionalists uh, at their back as advisors in, in different parts of the world. So yes, you know, when Steve comes onto the scene, um, becomes chairman for Trump's Trump's campaign, eventually becomes a special advisor in the White House. There are little murmurings about his his obscure ideological interests, but he eventually connects with Alexander Dugin, who is a very complicated public intellectual in Russia, has avenues toward influence and power, but they're very informal and they're very crooked and hard to understand. But he he is a major a major influence in Russia and has served as a diplomat. For, for unclear reasons for the Russian government in Eurasia in particular. And then end of 2018, beginning 2019, this other figure, Olavo de Carvalho, emerges in Brazil behind uh, Jair Bolsonaro, the president there. So we have all three of those figures moving around today. Mm-hmm. Just to move to, to the figure of Trump, who Bannon not only does he attach himself to, but is particularly kind of inspired by, and sees—I forget the exact phrase—but sees him as a, as a man in time. I think is the is the phrase that is used, and it'd be interesting to hear you say a bit more about that. But 
the picture of traditionalism that you sketch is one that is very critical of materialism, scorns kind of earthly pleasures of various different accounts. You know, correct me if I'm wrong on this. You know, what then does a traditionalist like Bannon see in this brassy billionaire called Trump that he thinks is actually going to, in some ways, you know, progress this cause of his? Sure. Yeah. In, in many ways, they're not a natural, a natural fit. But one thing that Bannon quite liked about Trump was his potential to disrupt, his potential to destroy. And to make sense of that, I'll briefly take, take us back to that, that time cycle concept. You know, when, when things are bad, we move into a dark age. One of its, its hallmarks, as I said, was the growth of massive society, mass homogenization. For someone like Steve, that in practical terms means globalization, the growth of kind of a world government, world, world economy, you know, that states are so large that they just, they just start eating up everything in their, in their path. And the way to break uh, that large scale chaos, uh, to break its back is to fragment it. Steve Bannon looked at Trump as someone who could come in and break apart globalization, break apart the projects of, of a single government, the United Nations, the, the World Health Organization, and the United States government. And, you know, the, the differences between them be damned, essentially. On the subject of this coalition that almost exists, I think one part of it, or one potential part of it, which obviously led Steve Bannon to come in for a lot of criticism, was the role that the alt-right, however defined, kind of plays in this. Obviously, Bannon famously saying that Breitbart, when he ran it, was the platform for the alt-right. There being various reports that he was behind Trump's more, shall we say, kind of equivocal stance after Charlottesville and also as you kind of sketch out in your book the kind of there being this kind of level of overlap or the level of contacts in between between you know the Richard Spencers of the world or people he might associate with and and Bannon himself I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that because it's a it's a it's a phrase right that seems to mean different things at different times to different people but you know what do you think in terms of that kind of white nationalist core that we think of you know is there a point of connection between these two political groups is that something that we should have been alarmed about I guess Mm Yes and no, because it is true that we you do have, let's say, the explicitly race nationalist, white nationalist element that identifies with an, and essentially at this point took over the alt-right. That's what alt-right means to, to most commentators. And, and then you have Steve Bannon and, and his closer followers who are at least willing to sort of share space with those actors, but still have some, some pretty profound ideological differences with them on a lot of, a lot of questions. And the connections between the two are at, at the one level interpersonal. There is a lot of backroom behind the scenes, you know, personal dealing between them. None that consequential for politics, let's say, in the Trump White House, but they, they are moving together even despite some ideological differences, they, they have been uh, spending a lot of time with each other. And Steve did recognize them as being part of Trump's coalition and a not entirely dispensable part of it, um, even though he can speak in quite colorful terms about how he thinks that they're fools and, you know, goobers, as he says, or, or you know, nutcases. He still, he still would not want to see them entirely pushed to the side, um, especially when they can identify common enemies. Um, so in that respect, he's been willing to, you know, sort of join and, and have a common cause with them, as Ben Shapiro once once put it. But, you know, especially today, especially today when alt-right, that phrase has been, it used to be fairly open phrase. It used to mean a number of different things, but 
in the United States, I really think it, it just has become a shorthand, a new way of saying white nationalism. Steve is much less warm to it than he used to. I would not expect him to ever again say that he is, or anything he works with as a platform for the alt-right. Um, you know, he's willing to draw that line, but, you know, again, he shares, shares a strategical common interest with them in some cases. So a difficult answer to your question, Tom, I'm afraid, but, but that's, that's kind of how I, how I see the map. Just finally, I suppose it's hard not to talk about coronavirus and COVID-19, but it's, it's also been quite interesting that this seems to be something which Steve Bannon in particular has kind of latched on to as an issue. It's something that he's talking about a lot. I was just wondering what the, what the traditionalist take is on the, on the situation that presents us, seeming because it does at the very least seem to lend to their worldview that everything's going to shit you know, at some <laughs> level, if nothing else. So, you know, how are both Steve Bannon and some of these other sort of traditionalists viewing the current crisis? What do they think it means? So I, I wouldn't say that they're happy about it. That would be quite an accusation to make. But especially Dugan and Bannon see a lot to be gained in this and also see a sort of fulfillment of prophecy. You know, Dugan sees um, that all of our channels of connection, our channels of exchange and movement um, are now, as he put it, receiving a divine reprimand. And that societies like America now have to choose between liberalism and life essentially you know that the the way to respond to this outbreak is is not more liberalism and more markets more freedom but instead it is to it is to adopt the ideals of traditionalism which is to say to break down to see a new assertion of border and social control and holism and collectivism as opposed to individuals moving and acting on on their own and Steve Bannon, he didn't say things like we have to choose between liberalism and life in the way that Dugan did, but he sees nonetheless a potential for a strengthening of borders, an obvious rebuke against globalism, and, and a potential for a, a new sort of organic community building throughout the world. And I suppose I did say finally, but just very, very finally, is the question of, I guess, the kind of future of this, because, you know, Steve Bannon is obviously, broadly speaking, kind of out of favour, you know, after since he'd been booted out of the Trump administration. I was just wondering, will this movement continue to kind of have what seems like a bit of an outsized influence? Or was this always a slightly odd alignment that we saw, which, you know, might not last particularly long? Well, there, uh, there are two questions there, Tom. I mean, one of them is about the philosophy itself, and the other is about the, the individuals involved question about traditionalism is a little is a little more difficult. This is not so much an explicit agenda vying for popularity among the populace as it is a lens to interpret events. The book's about the inability of these actors to to work together. However, they they're looking at the world in very different ways and they see causes in ways we might not expect. I end my book with a little tidbit from Sweden where a, a figure I spoke to was unexpectedly optimistic about politics there, despite the fact that his political party had been outmaneuvered. And he was happy to see that capitalists and socialists were suddenly uniting against him in his country. And so was, this meant that materialism and economic politics was declining in its importance in political life in Sweden. Spiritual values were, were rising up again. And that was a sort of deeper, long-term victory they could lose and still win in their minds. That was Ben Teitelbaum discussing his new book, War for Eternity. Now, before we move on to the final section of the podcast, I want to tell you all a bit about The Great Courses Plus. Many of our listeners I know are lifelong learners, and The Great Courses Plus is an ideal way to expand your knowledge 
It's a streaming service which offers access to thousands of fascinating lectures across almost any topic imaginable. They're taught by world-leading professors and experts in partnership with leading institutions. There are courses on world history, politics, the stock market, cooking, photography, you name it. You can enjoy The Great Courses Plus via your web browser. You can stream it from your Apple TV or Amazon Fire Stick. And with The Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen to their courses anytime, anywhere, just like you would with this podcast. I myself have recently been enjoying The Fall and Rise of China, which is a fascinating course by Dr. Richard Baum, and one that is particularly relevant given the global COVID crisis, as well as the mini cultural revolutions going on in the West at the moment. So, If you would like to continue your journey as a lifelong learner, do sign up to The Great Courses Plus. There's even a special offer for Spiked Podcast listeners. For a limited time, you can get a free month of access to their entire library. Uh, But to start your trial and to support our work in the process, you must sign up using the special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. So sign up today, get learning, and support this podcast in the process. Once again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spite. Thanks so much, and now on with the show. Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling has come under enormous criticism for speaking out about trans issues. She tweeted an article which talked about people who menstruate and asked why they hadn't used the word women. She followed up her tweet by saying that biological sex is real and denying this is dangerous. For this speech crime, she was denounced as transphobic, including by Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson, who play Harry Potter and Hermione Granger in the Harry Potter films. Ella, what do you make of this monstering? Well, this is a it's a particularly interesting case and you know twitter spats happen all the time and they're not often interesting but this one is important because what jk rowling said is to many people and most people in fact really uncontroversial um so there was this article in devex that she sort of took the piss out of because it used the term women who menstruate in a plea for better sanitation for women in developing countries and so it was this kind of ridiculous sort of situation where a desire to be right on completely clouded the original focus of the article and she said you know she she took the mick out of this and was lambasted for being anti-trans and I mean she's used to that she talks about this issue a lot and has done for a long time and then she sort of if you want to be uncharitable doubled down or better said qualified her statements by saying you know I think that trans people should be allowed to be called whatever they like and live a happy life and have the same rights and not be discriminated against. But by the way, I think sex is real. And to say that it isn't real denies the experience of women. It's the standard line that lots and lots and lots of radical feminists and even just sort of bog standard feminists have taken for a very long time. But the the interesting thing is the viciousness with which she has been criticised and attempted to be cancelled over the you know in the space of sort of twenty four forty eight hours. Especially interesting because she's written this long blog post that's been reported over absolutely every media outlet 
talking about her own experiences of sexual violence and using that to explain the reason why she thinks things like breaking up women-only spaces in private areas like women's shelters or prisons or changing rooms or any of these places might be dangerous. And the response has been, you know, excuse my language, but JK Rowling's a cunt. She should die. She can suck my dick. I mean, there's been a huge amount of she can suck my dick, which is Mm. an unfortunate evidence of the kind of the tendency for a, a lot of this discussion to wander into quite misogynistic language against these radical feminists. And Emma Watson, Daniel Radcliffe, you know, two individuals who owe their celebrity careers to Rowling have come out and not just said that they disagree with her, but made these kind of incredibly Orwellian statements that trans women are women and any other statement of that fact is denying their identity. It's like, basically, this is the religion and you have to kneel down to it. Otherwise, you're cancelled. It's really shocking because it shows that, you know, what we've been talking about for a long time on this podcast and on Spiked has been the intolerance around the debate about gender and trans. And if you're not allowed to say something as uncontroversial as I think that if you're writing an article about periods in developing countries, you're probably better off using the word women, then we've lost all touch with reality. And you don't have to love JK Rowling. In fact, you don't even have to get on board with the occasionally sort of hyped up panic about the danger of men or the danger of trans individuals in women-only spaces, which I don't agree with on the so-called turf side. All you have to be is a sensible person that says, surely we should talk about this and not scream abuse at someone for raising their head above the parapet. I think it's interesting. One of the things that motors the hatred for JK Rowling, as well as, you know, obviously her, her views being the main thing, but I think what adds an extra kind of element to it is the fact that she is kind of uncancellable mm. so the <laughs> there's nothing it, they can do in a way there's not exactly she's you know incredibly well off she's successful she, no one's ever going to seriously boycott her films or anything like that so she's kind of in in this kind of amazing position really where she can say what she wants now obviously it's unfortunate that 99.9% of people are not in that position and probably, you know, would face serious consequences if they were to say the same things as her. But that obviously increases the level of intolerance somewhat. Tom? One of the things that I think was striking about that, even though it's nothing new, is this case just really demonstrated how much the kind of trans ideology is a sort of war on, on language and how we speak as much as it is a question of particular rights, how Orwellian it is. You know, the thing that sparked this in the first place, that headline that was doing the rounds on the internet about creating a more equal post-COVID-19 world for people who menstruate. And this obviously sending JK Rowling off on one and just making the point that if sex isn't real, you know, you're erasing the experience of many women. If sex isn't real, there's no same-sex attraction. You know, this is just the basic building block of how we understand the two broad biological categories of human beings. You know, this is nothing controversial, yet this ideology just demands that we say that two plus two equals five in all of these situations. And I think she's actually doing a good service insofar as not only just making clear that it's ridiculous to completely erase the concept of biological sex at the behest of a very small group of very shrill campaigners who are even not representative of the people they claim to be speaking on behalf of on, 
but also that this does absolutely nothing to erase or denigrate trans people. The existence of biological sex that most people fall into and are comfortable with does nothing to affect the rights of the incredibly small proportion of people who feel that they are born in a different body and want to live their life as they see fit. You know, accepting that and just, you know, remarking upon it has nothing to do with patting out how those people should be treated. The problem is, is that the kind of trans activism has become as much a a war on language as it as it is a kind of a campaign for particular rights and the kind of intolerance that has been leveled there has been absolutely surprising the other thing that's worth pointing out and despite the fact that as you say fraser she is uncancellable the level of vitriol i think is really stark and i think the two things for it is first of all you have this kind of generational difference which i think is kind of embodied by the fact that you had um mm. hermione and harry bless them you know come out and denounce her in such strong terms so <laughs> many of her fans you've seen this happen throughout her kind of controversial statements on this expressing genuine heartbreak that she happens not to hold exactly the same views as them so you're seeing a bit of a generational gap i think a little bit opening up here but the other thing that is incredibly difficult to ignore is the level of vitriol aimed at a and all other women who weighed into this issue. There's loads of people mm. who talk about the trans issue. Brendan O'Neill writes about it a lot. Glynna tweets about it all the time. You know, James Kirk up at The Spectator. There's all these people who write about this issue. But the level of vitriol and hatred reserved not just for very prominent people like J.K. Rowling, but various other women commentators, etc. It's hard not to see this as just a kind of given a green light to the misogyny of some of these campaigners. As Ella was saying, the language that they use is so disgusting and kind of dehumanising. It's remarkable that saying something as simple as biological sex exists, two plus two equals four, is now such an outrageous statement. I think it just shows how important it is to hold the line against these kind of mad ideologies, whether they come from Black Lives Matter or trans activists, because otherwise, you know, we're going to find ourselves in a very, very curious and intolerant position as a society. It is very astonishing, the kind of sanitised language that they demand of the rest of us, you know, sometimes even finding the word woman offensive, spelling it WIMXN or whatever, compared with the kind of language they use that people who break the language rules is quite a kind of fascinating head-turning thing to, to witness. Uh, Ella? But there's also a really serious point to make here, which is that what does this mean for women? And I don't mean cis women or WIMXN, but, you know, women like me who are both insulted by the idea that we'd be characterised as people who menstruate, you know, as if that's all that I've got going for me. And also, you know, this idea that there's nothing in relation to the difference in my body to men is relevant. You know, a really interesting way in which this was sort of revealed was in the Yes campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment in Ireland for abortion rights, there was a real push from trans activists for, to get campaigners who were pro-choice in the Republic of Ireland, you know, talking to sort of farmers in Kerry and, you know, people who weren't exactly, definitely weren't woke and definitely weren't immediately switched on to the idea of abortion rights, that you talked about pregnant people. And I mean, it wasn't just impractical. It was also denying the fact that women were suffering from prejudice and discrimination in the law, not because they were pregnant people, but because they were women. And it was basically saying that there's no women's politics here. There's no women's freedom. There's no specificity to this. This is just about people. And of course it isn't. And, you know, periods happen to women, not all women. I mean, you know, there's the menopause, there's people with polycystic ovaries, there's people who take the pill back to back because they don't want the fuss of tampons and the always and all of that. But, you know, the thing that freaks me out most is that on both sides of this debate, there's a 
a really narrow view of what a woman should be defined as being drawn. And it makes me incredibly uncomfortable because we are neither just the sum of our parts nor some fictional representation of, you know, if you put on a dress and you're a woman, there's got to be more to us than that. And so that's my kind of plea in this debate is, please, can we stop trying to narrowly define womanhood in these, you know, rather visceral terms? You've been listening to The Spiked Podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.